I guess it's quite hard to imagine what it's like to be crucified. It was designed to be the most torturous, the most humiliating, the most horrifying of experiences. It was designed to put people off ever rebelling against the Roman Empire. But perhaps these words, um, which are from the Old Testament, might describe something about what it felt like to be on the cross. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. Obviously not every detail fits, but many of them do. I don't know about you, but when I feel a bit ill, um, I feel rather helpless. Do you ever feel like that? I feel feeble, weak. I quite easily sink into self-pity and introspection, become very self-focused. And yet I think one of the amazing things about this passage as we read about Jesus as he was going to experience this incredible suffering, this incredible pain, this incredible torment, this incredible rejection by people, as he was to experience the helplessness of hanging on the cross, his arms and his legs pinned back so that they were unable to move, his breath hardly there, so he was only just able to speak. He was completely helpless. And yet, even at this moment, Jesus is there offering support, challenge, encouragement, and help to others. And ultimately, as we see, the greatest of salvation. Jesus was helpless. <coughs> And yet he became the greatest helper of all. Let's look at the passage in more detail as we look at the four, we basically look at the four words of Jesus going through the passage. And the first word is a word on grief. Um, Jesus is being led to the, the cross. We see his helplessness in a sense. He's been already flogged. He's been mocked. He's had that crown of thorns put on his head and the, the blood coming down his side, uh, coming down his forehead. Um, and we already see that he's weak because he's not able to carry his cross, as was expected of the, execute, the people that to be executed. And so the soldiers grab someone else that's passing by, Simon from Cyrene, and he's made to carry the cross instead of Jesus. A sign of the weakness, the helplessness of Jesus. And as he goes to his execution, the people in Jerusalem, and particularly the women, are crying out and wailing and beating their breasts and up, so upset at what is happening. This one that they considered to be the Messiah, this one that they'd welcomed into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, is now to be crucified. And yet Jesus, rather than accepting their mourning for him, 
rather than allowing them to focus on what hurts him, speaks to them with powerful words. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus wants to completely redirect their grief. The words that follow are words of prediction of what the judgment that is to come upon Jerusalem, a judgment for their rejection of Jesus, a judgment for their failure to repent as God called them to repent, a judgment that would come through the Romans destroying Jerusalem about 40 years after these events. But what Jesus is really saying is, don't mourn for me, mourn for the sin that leads to God's anger and God's judgment. That's where your grief should be focused. Because actually you think, I'm in trouble. But actually, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to ultimately sit at God's right hands. If you don't repent soon, your eternity is gone. You face hell. So Jesus calls on them to have grief but not grief for him, but grief for their sin. And you see at the end of the passage that the people of Jerusalem still are grieving as Jesus dies on the cross. And it says, when all the people, in verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Do you know where else it talks about beating your breast in Luke's Gospel? It's the story that Jesus tells, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the Pharisee is proud and arrogant and says, look how wonderful I am to God. He stands haughty in the temple. But it says the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. His grief was focused on his sin and the consequences of that sin. And because of that, he cried out to God for mercy. And what does Jesus say? He says that that man, the man who cried for mercy, he was the one who went home right before God. You see, Jesus wants them to turn and have grief for themselves and grief for their own sins so that they may find redemption, so they may find salvation. Because it's only when we're sorry for our own sins, it's only when we realize our own need for forgiveness that we can find hope, that we can find forgiveness. And yet, actually, that is the point of what Jesus had come to do. Um, the commentators aren't quite certain about this, but Luke is the only gospel writer to talk about these, this grieving that happens, um, both the beating of the breast as they leave and the women wailing um, as Jesus is taken to the cross. And it may be that Luke is referring to a prophecy in Zechariah. Um, it's going to appear on the screen. And let me read it to you. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 to 13, verse 1. And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadadrimon in the place, plain of Megiddo. 
The land will mourn each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. And on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. See, Luke tells us that the women are the ones that are grieving, and in the passage in Zechariah talks about the wives quite a lot, doesn't it? You see that? This is a strange terminology. It's talking about the wives grieving, the wives mourning. And what does this preclude? What's about, what's about to happen? A fountain's going to be open. Forgiveness is going to be made available. Jesus says to the women, don't grieve for me. Grieve for yourselves that you might seek that fountain of forgiveness that will come as a result of my death today. So Jesus calls on people to grieve their sin and not his death. Of course, this is a challenge, isn't it? It's the way many of us live. We like people to feel sorry for us. Don't you like people to feel sorry for you? Particularly when you're suffering? Um, you often read on Facebook comments about how bad things are. and They're looking for people to put comments underneath saying, um, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, or I'm, I'm really upset that you're going through that. It's a way of sort of getting sympathy for you, isn't it? So that's one of the things that Facebook does. Jesus has every right to seek such sympathy, but he doesn't. He turns it around and sends mourn rather for the consequences of your sin. He challenges them. And again, that's difficult, isn't it? Because we live in a world where people don't like to be challenged. People don't like to be told they're sinners. And of course, we have to be sensitive to how we do it. And yet we have an advantage over Jesus. Because we ourselves are sinners. We can tell others about our grief for our sin. We can model sorrow for our sins in the ways that Jesus couldn't. And yet Jesus' aim wasn't just to make people feel guilty. He wasn't just to make people feel bad. His aim was to make them see their needs. Um, most of us don't like to be told if we've got something seriously wrong with us, health-wise. Many people will avoid going to the doctors to, to be told that news, even though we might suspect something's wrong. And it's only when we, when we accept that there's something wrong with us that we can find treatment and healing. And Jesus doesn't want them to grieve just so they feel sad. He wants them to grieve that they can find that healing, that comfort. So Jesus, even in his helpless state, even as he's being led to the cross, has words of challenge as he seeks to draw, point people to the forgiveness he's about to win. But secondly, there's a word of forgiveness, isn't there? And these um, incredible words of Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And these words are incredible in a way, but they fulfill what Jesus teaches to say. Jesus teaches us, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28, he says, But I tell you, tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. Forgiveness is difficult. And yet Jesus says we should forgive. And Jesus modelled that forgiveness. 
at the point where he's been treated the most brutally possible. He said, Father, forgive them. But he also said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do, doesn't he? He admits their ignorance. And sometimes when we talk to the world about Christ and we talk to the world about their sin, we need to help them see that it's not so much that they've been blatantly going against God, but they've been ignorant of God. Peter, when he preaches um, for the second time in Acts to the crowds in Jerusalem, he says this, and the words are on the screen. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. He's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's quite soon after the crucifixion. He's saying to them, look, you you didn't really know what you're doing. You didn't really realize that Jesus was truly the Son of God. You didn't really realize that you were crucifying the Messiah. And yet this is how God fulfilled what he has foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. But now you see what happened. Now you understand what's going on. Now you need to repent and turn to God so that, and here's that offer of forgiveness, so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You see, Jesus, as he hangs there helplessly on the cross, as he hangs there in pain, as he hangs there naked, he prays for their forgiveness. What an amazing act of power from someone who is so helpless. What an amazing act of love from someone who is so hated. Jesus offers forgiveness to those who have falsely condemned him. And as Christians, we too need to offer forgiveness even to those who hurt us, who falsely treat us. And again, we have an advantage over Jesus because we've already been forgiven ourselves. We know the forgiveness that Jesus paid for us at the great cost of his life. When we struggle to forgive, we need to look again at Jesus, look at what he did that we could be forgiven, and look what he did that he was able to forgive others, even as they brutally treated him. We have his example to follow. But we also have his forgiveness to offer, to offer to those in our world who are ignorant. Ignorant of God. Ignorant of what God calls for our lives. Jesus offers a word of forgiveness. But thirdly, Jesus offers a word of hope. After his word of forgiveness in verse 34, it says, and they divide up his clothes by casting lots. It's a, it's a, it's a detail that's recorded in all the Gospels. And it's an important detail because it's a fulfillment, a fulfillment of a description in Psalm 22. But actually, Psalm 22 is ultimately a psalm of hope. Listen to some verses at the end of Psalm 22. Um, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. And then, for, for God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. It, it's a psalm that rejoices in God's salvation. And yet, before it gets to that point, before all the verses up to verse 22 of Psalm 22, our prayers of utter desolation. The first verse is a verse that's often we're told in other, in other Gospels, we're told Jesus said at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
so helpless. And, and then in verse 18, it tells us that they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Again, a sign of hopelessness, isn't it? A sign of complete and utter despair that even his clothes are being taken away. This is as good as dead. He's as naked. He's humiliated. And then one of the key things in the psalm is it talks about people mocking him. Verses 7 and 8 say, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. When we come to our passage in Luke 23, what do we find? We don't just find that they divided up his clothes, but immediately we're told of people mocking Jesus. First, the rulers in Jerusalem, then the soldiers, and then one of the thieves or criminals on the cross next to him. They all mock him. And their mocking actually echoes the words of Satan. If you are the son of God, they say to him. If you are the king of the Jews, they say to him. Aren't you the Messiah? He says to him. And what does Satan say when he tests Jesus back in Luke chapter 4? Twice he says to him, if you are the son of God. They question his very identity just as Satan questions his very identity. Their mocking is designed to strip him of who he really is, to strip him of his glory. And as part of their mocking, they say, he saved others, let him save himself. There's irony in those words, isn't there? Because actually, if he saved others... And they've seen the miracles that Jesus did. They've seen him heal the blind. They've seen him um, help the lame to walk. They've seen that he raised even the dead. If they've seen those things, if they know about those things, then surely they should trust that he is the Son of God. He saved others. Well, then surely he's the Savior. He's the one that God has sent. His deeds, his miracles are signs of his identity, and yet they're questioning his identity. But secondly, the phrase is ironic because actually what Jesus is about on the cross isn't about saving himself. It is about saving others. All his actions are about saving others. Don't mourn for me. Mourn for your own sins. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. This is about saving others. And when the other thief on the other side of him says... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does he say to him? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That man will be saved. A man who equally is helpless as Jesus, not able to do anything to make up for his sins, bad as they must be because he's being crucified, he must have done something pretty bad to do that. He can do nothing to do anything about it. He's helpless to do anything about his sins, helpless to do anything to pay back God or pay back people. And yet, simply by calling on Jesus, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? 
because Jesus isn't about saving himself. He's about saving others. And just as the psalm offers hope for the suffering servant, in a sense it offers hope for his brothers as well. In Psalm 22, 22, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers. This is salvation not just for the suffering person, but for others around him as well. And so Jesus, even in the midst of his own death, offers eternal life to this other guy. The one we might feel least deserves it, and yet, graciously, God gives it to him. Jesus offers a word of hope. But finally, Jesus comes and offers a word of trust. In verse 46, just before he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Those words are from Psalm 31. Have you been paying attention? Psalm 31 was the psalm I read right at the beginning of this today. Just like Psalm 22, it echoes many of the experiences that Jesus is going through. And yet Jesus says right at the end, God, I put my trust in you. Why can he put his trust in God? Because ultimately Jesus has been obedient. Obedient even to death. You see, three times in Luke's Gospel and in the other Gospels, we're told that Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen. Luke 9.22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus was clear in his own mind, this is what God was calling him to. And as horrific and as horrendous as it was, Jesus went totally to Jerusalem, not looking back. And the night before he died, he had a meal with his disciples, the Passover. The great Jewish traditional meal where they remember God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. And in that meal, he gave them a way to help understand what he was about to do on the cross. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to Remember that same meal later on this evening as we take the bread and the wine. Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving my body for you. I'm dying for you. This is an act of salvation for you. And he did it in the context of the Passover meal. I think that may help us as we look at some of the details that happened just before he dies. So in verse 34, we're told that at noon, at midday, um, or the sixth hour, the Jews counted their hours from the beginning of the day, so six o'clock was the start of the day, the sixth hour was noon. It says, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. We're not told what the darkness means by Luke. We're not really told by any of the gospel writers what, what it means, we're just told that it happens. And it, one explanation may be that it links back to what happened just before the Passover. Remember the story in Egypt? Um, Israel were slaves in Egypt and Moses was sent to the Pharaoh to say, let my people, let God's people go. And Pharaoh refused and so God started saying plagues on Egypt, one after the other. Um, and finally, it got to the ninth plague. 
And the ninth plague, do you know what that was? It's a plague of darkness. It says in Exodus 10, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky, so that the darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. There was darkness. It was a sign of God's judgment on Egypt. But what was the next sign of God's judgment on Egypt? What was the tenth plague? It was the death of the firstborn. And how were Israel saved from the death of the firstborn? They were to take a Passover lamb and sacrifice it and paint its blood on the doorposts and the door mantle so that the angel of death would pass over their household. This darkness seems to be a judgment. Could it be a judgment on Jerusalem for what, God, what they're doing to Jesus? Well, possibly, but the judgment on Jerusalem doesn't come for another 40 years. Well, likely this is a sense of a judgment on Jesus, and Jesus is taking the place of the Passover lamb. Jesus is taking the place of others that they may not need to be judged. Isaiah 53, 4-7 says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the lamb that was led to be slaughtered, who took the punishment for our sin, who took our guilt upon himself on the cross. Jesus died at Passover. Jesus died in darkness, the ninth plague that preceded the tenth plague. And at the time that Jesus died, it says the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Again, we're not really told by the Gospel writers exactly what this means, and if you look at the commentaries, there's all sorts of different reasons. But surely it has something to do with the fact that now Jesus has died, the temple is no longer necessary. The temple was the way to God, but now Jesus offers a new way to God. He offers a new route to forgiveness. The temple was a place of sacrifice, sacrifices of sins, sacrifices of the Passover lamb, but Jesus now replaces all those sacrifices with his once and for all sacrifice. The old way of the temple worship is now gone, it's now ripped in two. The new way of Jesus has been made possible. What Jesus has done on the cross has achieved something powerful and something new. He's opened the floodgates of forgiveness and grace for the cleansing of sins, as it says in Zechariah. He's won the victory. And as he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This was the great moment of victory. The end, if you like, of the temple, the end of Jesus' mission to come and to die. 
but it was not the end of Jesus. Because the psalm promises that God will not desert his faithful one. He will not desert his obedient one. Psalm 22 talks about the suffering servant or the suffering man and yet it ends with the one who goes on and proclaims God's greatness to his brothers. Isaiah 53 ends by saying that the suffering servant will see life. He will see his days. He will see the future. And Psalm 31 talks of God's deliverance. This is not the end for Jesus. His promise to the robber on the cross is powerful because death is not the end for him. He will be king through death, through resurrection, king for eternity, king for us, our saviour and our Lord. On the cross, it looked like Jesus was totally helpless. And yet on the cross, Jesus achieved something far greater than anyone else could ever achieve. He achieved our salvation. Let's pray.